Good evening. You know we have to do that again, right? Good evening. evening. Much better. This evening we're going to finish up our series of studies in the book of Nehemiah. We've been here for a few weeks, and this evening we come to the end of what is one of my favorite books. So many wonderful lessons, but as we get to the last few chapters, and we start in chapter 11, uh, there's some housekeeping, basically. Nehemiah is going to share some documents The first part of this will just be sort of a summary of what we find there. But when we get to chapter 13, we're going to see that he had to deal with four really major problems. And if there's anything like, perhaps, I mean, I don't mind taking out the garbage, but I'd rather take out the garbage all day long than deal with problems. You know what I mean? It's just like when you have, and there are people problems. Because there's problems like math problems. I liked math problems. You know, but people problems, people problems are always just, first of all, they're problems and then they're people. So it's like a double whammy. I mean, let's be honest. Dealing with people can be challenging. It can be difficult. Now imagine you're Nehemiah and you come back to the city of Jerusalem. You rebuild the wall in 52 days. You set everything up. You set all these reforms in place. You get everyone to make a commitment to do the right thing. Then you go away for two years. You come back and you find things not in the state you left them. So that's what we're going to see tonight. We're going to see how Nehemiah addressed those problems. And you'll probably be happy to see that, you know, it it really bothered him that people weren't doing what they knew they were supposed to be doing. And this was God's people. So let's pray and let's get into it. We'll we'll deal with chapters uh, 11 and 12 before we get into 13 briefly. But as we get into the study this evening... Uh, We're going to once again see the leadership that Nehemiah exemplified and showed as a leader over God's people. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this precious book in your word, and we pray that this evening's study would be beneficial in building us up and helping us to be the people you've called us to be, and especially the leaders in our homes, in our families, in the church, in our ministries, the leaders that you've called us to be learning to draw boundaries, learning to, to, to stand up and say what's right when it's not the popular thing to say or it's not what people want to hear. Help us to follow Nehemiah's example, indeed Jesus' example. As we study your word, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, let's start by just looking briefly at where we've come from as we've gone through this series of studies. Nehemiah In chapter 11, documents the Jews who settled in Jerusalem. This was very important. They needed to know where people came from their ancestry in order to serve as priests. But the whole thing that Nehemiah is trying to achieve now that he's rebuilt the walls is he's trying to repopulate the city. The city was empty. This was their capital city. This is where there was supposed to be many people living. People were living in the villages, but they didn't feel safe in the city, kind of like we don't anymore, right, around here? And you know what happened is he needed to solve this problem. Nehemiah had made plans to restore the population in the city. He did that in chapter 7. Because the city was severely underpopulated and the home still needed to be rebuilt, that was important to the Jewish nation. So God directed him to assemble all the people living in Judah for registration by families. So they figured out who was who and where people needed to be. We saw last week that he looked to God for solutions when confronting practical problems. Actually, I think it was two studies ago. He looked to God for solutions when confronting practical problems. God is the solution to all problems, not just spiritual problems. Practical problems. I forget that sometimes. As I shared, you know, I'm on Google trying to solve a practical problem when, in fact, God is the answer to that problem. 
So registering the people by families would enable them to be restored to the city, which is what he did, and uh, God put it in his heart to do these things. And he found the record of those who had been the first to return to Judah, so he starts to set things right. And then the people implemented a plan to restore the population in the city after the wall was, was, was rebuilt. And so we pick it up here in verses 1 and 2. And we see that now the leaders of the people in chapter 11 of the book of Nehemiah, now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. Notice, the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. Hold on to that thought. And the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city. And while the remaining nine, that is nine out of ten, were to stay in their own towns, the people commended all of the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. So here's the problem, the practical problem. There's nobody living in the city. They need to repopulate the city. So who is it that leads the people? The leaders. What makes a leader a leader? They lead. So there's an opportunity for them to step up and be the example to the rest of the people. And I have to say, in church leadership, in any leadership, understanding the power of example is so vitally important. See, if you say, yeah, you know, you really should go to church, but you don't go to church, you're leading people in the wrong way. If you say, well, you know what, you really should give, but you don't give, or serve, but you don't serve, it doesn't matter what you say. Little children, they they sniff you right out. If they know that you're telling them to do something or not do something that you're doing and not doing, hey, listen, they'll let you know. Don't have any cookies before dinner. But you had a cookie. Isn't it amazing how they pick up on that stuff? Better than the KGB, man. They understand that when you say something and it conflicts with what you do, you no longer have the power of example. So here's what the leaders do. They decide, we'll move into the city. And it sets the tone. So then people start saying, well, okay, well, who who goes there? Well, we'll cast lots. We'll randomly decide one out of 10, you're going in the city. That's great. But they're following the leader's example. And then there were people that just said, you know what? You don't even have to draft me. I'll go. And the people just commended these volunteers. See, it starts with the leaders. It's amazing. When, you, when leaders serve, guess what? You don't have a hard time getting people to serve. So, but if the leaders stand around chastising the people, none of you are serving, none of you are, that doesn't get the job done. So I love that example. And then we see that Nehemiah then recorded the names of those leaders that moved to the city after the wall was rebuilt. Now, why is that important? Well, We don't need to know their names. We're not going to read through all their names. But isn't it interesting that God recorded their names for eternity in this book of Nehemiah, in his word, which will never pass away? Heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will never pass away, we're told, Jesus tells us. So forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, these names of these volunteers and these leaders who decided to do the right thing are recorded. And I assure you that every act Every word, everything we do for God is recorded in eternity and will be preserved in the mind of God and rewarded for eternity forever. Just keep that in mind. See, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for that eternal reward from God, that validation and affirmation from him. This is a little bit of it, sort of a hall of fame of people that did the right thing over the years, but all that to say that, you know what? God does not forget. He sees. He knows 
when we do what we're supposed to do and even go beyond that sometimes. So, <clears throat> Nehemiah recorded the names of those leaders who moved to the city after the wall was rebuilt. I'll just read a little bit, and I'm not going to read all the names, but these are the provincial leaders who settled in Jerusalem, verse 3. Now, some Israelites, priests, Levites, temple servants, and descendants of Solomon's servants lived in the towns of Judah, each on his own property in the various towns, while other people from both Judah and Benjamin lived in Jerusalem. So some of the people stayed in their towns, some of the people came to the city. We've established that already. And as we go through this chapter, and I'm not going to read all the names, I'll summarize it for you. We see that from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, we have the names of those in verses 4 through 9 of those who lived in Jerusalem. Then we have the priests and the Levites who lived in Jerusalem from verses 10 through 19. And then the rest of the people, priests and Levites, continued to live in the towns of Judah, but those of the temple servants who lived in Jerusalem are listed in verses 21 through 24. Again, it doesn't serve us to read through all those names, but you need to know that if your name was in there, you'd be happy about that. Have you ever seen a picture taken of a group of people? Who's the first person you look for? And if your eyes are closed, the picture is no good. Everybody else could look great, but if your eyes are closed, it's a bad picture. Retake the shot. I just, you know, so listen, I imagine if you were, let's say, uh, let me find the name here. Uh, there's a lot of son of, son of, son of, son of. Uh, the, you were one of the descendants of Perez. You'd be pretty happy that your name was listed in there. Okay, so that gets us through that section and all the way down uh, through what we're reading today uh, to, I guess, around verse 25, because those are all the names of the people listed there. Not much more than just the names and the number of people. But when we get down to verse let's see, 25, we see that Nehemiah then recorded the names of the villages where some of the people lived. So he not only recorded the names of those that moved to Jerusalem, but he recorded the names of the villages. And again, it doesn't serve us to read through all of the names of these towns that we probably can't even find on a map today. But if you read through them in verses 25 through 36, you'll see there were villages where those from the tribe of Judah lived, villages where those of the tribe of Benjamin lived, and some of the Levites lived in the towns of Benjamin. All of that gets us through chapter 11. Okay, now we get to chapter 12. And in chapter 12, Nehemiah included the paperwork, the genealogical record of the priests and the Levites who settled in Jerusalem. In verses 1 through 9, now we're in chapter 12, it says, These were the priests and the Levites who returned with Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and with Jeshua. This was the first return. This was a long time ago. This was 94 years earlier in 538 BC. But still the names were recorded here because they were the ancestors of the people who were now living in that area of the world, in Judea. And that gets us all the way through verses 1 through 9. And then when you get to verse 10, you have the descendants of Jeshua and the heads of the priestly families in the days of his son, Joachim. That's verses 10 through 21, and there's a long list of names here. But it gives you the ancestry and all the priests and high priests. And then you get down to verse 22, and uh, we learn there that the family heads of the Levites in the days of Eliashib, Jehoiada, Jonanan, and Jado, as well as those with the priests, were recorded in the reign of Darius the Persian. Now that's interesting because this is the head of all the priests, all the Levites, in the days of the descendants of these priests, but this is recorded in the time of Darius. This is not the time of Darius. We're talking about a time uh, where Artaxerxes is king. So all of this is history. 
And then we get to verse 23, and we learn that the family heads among the descendants of Levi up to the time of Jehanan, son of Eliashib, were recorded in the book of the Annals. That's the official chronicles of the Persian Empire. So some of the records of the pagan kings and the pagan culture recorded this information. So what is Nehemiah doing? And Ezra is probably the one doing the actual recording. They're putting the documents together to establish their nation for the future. By having this documentation, they could continue to be a people knowing who their leaders were, knowing who the priests were, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the temple servants, all of them. This is a reform that establishes a foundation. The temple had been rebuilt over the last hundred years. The walls had just recently been rebuilt. And now the people had been rebuilt. So understand, while it's not all that interesting, it's actually extremely important. And then we learn in verses 24 through 26 of chapter 12 that the leaders of the Levites and the gatekeepers in the days of Jehoiakim uh, and in the days of Nehemiah and Ezra are listed for us there. And their names between verses 24 and 26. Okay. Now one of the things uh, that you see here, uh, it's interesting. It says the leaders of the Levites and lists their names. Uh, who stood opposite them to give praise and thanksgiving, one section responding to the other as prescribed by David, the man of God. The only thing I want to mention here is this is called antiphonal chant. The idea is call and response. So one group of Levites or priests would praise the Lord and other people would respond with the same. So it's call and response. And I've been to pastor's conferences where one side of the auditorium. Frank, you know what I'm talking about. They say something, and then the other side says it back. It's, it's really interesting. It's, it's an interesting way of praising God and encouraging one another, and it's one of the ways that are mentioned there. Okay, so that gets us through a lot of the documentation, but then we get to verses 27 of chapter 12 for the rest of the book, and this is really the, the first section is the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, and then we'll see Nehemiah's final reforms. Now, they worked so hard to, to rebuild the wall. But now they have a celebration. Now that's exactly what it is, a dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah dedicated the wall, and uh, we read in verses 27 uh, through, there's a lot of reading here, I'll go through it quickly. It says, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they had lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The singers also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Netophathites, uh, from Beth Gilgal, from the area of Geba and Asmaveth, for the singers had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. And when the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. So again, a dedication service. I had the leaders of Judah, Judah go up on the top of the wall, and I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. So we get to this idea of the antiphonal chant. They're sort of chanting or praising back and forth. Uh, he says, One was to proceed on the top of the wall to the right toward the dung gate. Hoshai and half the leaders of Judah followed them, along with Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, as well as some of the priests with trumpets, and also Zechariah, son of Jonathan, and then it goes on to list a number of different names. Uh, and then we get down to... It mentions Ezra the scribe, uh, and all of this was prescribed by David, the man of God. We get down there to the end of verse 36. Ezra the scribe led the procession. So you have one list of names, these individuals following Ezra. 
Now at the fountain gate, they continued directly up to the steps of the city of David on the ascent to the wall and passed above the house of, of David to the water gate and on the east. So you have this one large group of priests and Levites making their way along the wall. <clears throat> the second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. I followed them on top of the wall, together with half of the people past the Tower of the Ovens to the broad wall over the Gate of Ephraim, the Jeshana Gate, the Fish Gate, the Tower of Hananel, the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Sheep Gate, and at the Gate of the Guard, they stopped. And this is just interesting how they praise the Lord in this time of dedication. It says in verse 40, the two choirs that gave thanks then took their places in the house of God. So did I together with half the officials as well as the priests, and it mentions their names. Uh, and then it goes down, the choir sang, in verse 42, under the direction of Jezrahiah. And on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. You know, God will give you great joy, do you know that? Amen? He will. Especially if you're praising him. Well, the women and the children also rejoiced, and the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. And at that time, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the contributions, first fruits and tithes, from the fields around the towns uh, they were to bring into the storerooms the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites, for Judah was pleased with the ministering priests and Levites. They performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did also the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the commands of David and his son Solomon. For long ago... In the days of David and Asaph, there had been directors for the singers and for the songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So in the days of Zerubbabel and of Nehemiah, so Zerubbabel, almost 100 years earlier, Nehemiah, the current time in which this is being written. So in the days of Zerubbabel and of Nehemiah, all Israel contributed to the daily portions for the singers, the gatekeepers, and they also set aside the portion for all the other Levites, and the Levites set aside the portion for the descendants of Aaron. The people would tithe, they'd give that to the Levites, the Levites would tithe, they'd give that to the priests, and everyone's needs was met, were met. So here's the thing. When the people of God were doing what they were supposed to be doing, everything was great. If it only could have stayed that way. See, here's the problem, is that you know we do good for a while, we do well, and then sometimes we start to become disobedient. And, and you know, it's amazing. Disobedience to God actually hurts us a lot. We operated a deficit in the church and in our own lives when we know what we're supposed to do, but we don't do it. And, you know, I think that life is tough enough, right? Doing the things that God has called us to do, getting up every day, serving God in a dark and desperate world is difficult. But when you and I, when we don't do what we're called to do and obey God, we make it a whole lot more difficult for ourselves. So we're going to see now that Nehemiah had to deal with this. Because right at this moment, everybody was doing what they were supposed to be doing. And parents, you know that if you leave your kids for 20 minutes in the other room, and it gets real quiet, usually it gets real quiet, like the calm before the storm, can't be anything good happening during that 20 minutes. And it's just the way we as human beings are wired. We tend to get into trouble when we're left alone. So you know what my answer to that is? Spend time alone with God, but spend time in the places you're supposed to be. You know, if you're in church, in fellowship, in worship, 
in the word, it's really kind of hard to get into trouble. But if you spend a lot of time in places you shouldn't be, it's really easy to get into trouble. And we're going to see when they stopped doing what they were supposed to do, <coughs> they started doing the things they weren't supposed to do. Let's look at this. This is where we're going to really focus this evening. Okay. The first thing is, Nehemiah addressed a problem. There was a man by the name of Eliashib. He was the priest. And he was using the storerooms of the temple in Jerusalem inappropriately. So he was using God's resources inappropriately. Okay, let's, let's read, uh, maybe we'll read this whole section. Let's see. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God, because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Oh, it sounds like racism, doesn't it? Actually, it has nothing to do with race. It has everything to do with serving God. They understood that if they spent time with people that didn't serve God, they were going to become like the people that didn't serve God. One of the lessons I had to learn early on, and it was a hard lesson, is that I couldn't continue to serve God and hang around with my friends who weren't serving God. Sometimes it didn't affect me all that much. Other times it did. And I learned what the scripture says, bad company corrupts good morals. Whereas my grandma used to say, you know, you show me your friends and I'll tell you who you are. And it's so true when you are hanging around with the wrong kinds of people and doing things you shouldn't be doing, it, it, it impacts you in such a negative way. Why would you do that to yourself? Well, because you're like those little kids in the next room. You're going to get in trouble given the opportunity. Once you know that about yourself, I don't care whether you're a pastor, I don't care whether you're a missionary, you've been a Christian 40 years. Once you understand that, it's like if anyone thinks he's strong, let him take heed lest he fall. Once you understand that you are capable of the greatest evil, that that you could probably give Satan a run in a foot race, once you understand that about your fallen nature, you're going to take it very seriously, that is, the word of God and obeying it. Because you're going to understand and recognize who you are. When you look in the mirror, you're going to say, I don't have horns, but I could fill in for Satan. I'm capable of the worst imaginable things. And once you know that, and you bring that to God, you're strong. Because when you're weak and humble, you're strong. But see, the problem here is that these people, well, as we've already seen, they had done right for a while, and they initially got rid of all the people of foreign descent, that is, the, the pagans and the people who were serving other gods. But here's what was actually going on behind the scenes. And Nehemiah is good throughout this book to show us these things. In verse 4, he says, Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms. What I guess he's trying to say is, I didn't give him that job. But he had that job. He was put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah. By the way, he's one of the bad guys in this book. And he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions 
for the priests. But notice what Nehemiah says in verse 6. But while all this was going on, where was he? I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Some time later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. And here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the rooms. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. The whole thing fell apart in two years. Does that surprise you? Well, I already told you what happens in 20 minutes with little kids, but wait a minute. Two years later, Nehemiah, because he was a government official, had to go back to Persia. He had committed himself to go, restore the nation, and then come back, as he had told King Artaxerxes back in chapter 1. He finds out that after two years of everything being set just right, the whole place goes to heck. And it is so discouraging when you work with somebody and they get clean from whatever it was they were doing, whether it's drugs and alcohol, sexual immorality, whatever it is, they stop and you think to yourself, praise the Lord. And then you go away on vacation for a week. And while you're away, you come back and they're laying in the gutter doing whatever it was they were doing before. And you think to yourself, you mean, maybe I shouldn't have gone. Maybe I should have been here. No, 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 no. That's called enabling. You can enable someone to stay in sin, and you can enable someone to stay out of sin. That's something that I'm sure in recovery ministry they talk about. You can't rely on another person. You have to rely on God. Some recovery ministry calls it a higher power. It's Jesus Christ. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. When you help someone, when you rescue someone from the pit of hell and sin, and you introduce them to Jesus, and they develop a relationship with him, you can go away for two weeks and come back, and they're fine. Because they're not leaning on you as their sponsor or their mentor. And I've had people, you know, oh, pastor, I wouldn't have fell into sin if you just called me back. I was at a wedding. What did you want me to do? You know, I've had situations like that. Actually, one time I had a a mom. I was working with uh, a young man, one of the first guys I ever tried to disciple. And uh, he's a nice guy. But he was just like wasting my time. Because on Wednesdays we'd talk, we'd pray, we'd study, and then by Friday he was doing the wrong thing again. So finally I just washed my hands. I said, you know what? Let me know when you're serious about serving the Lord. And his mom called me up. You know, because she was up, she was so happy that, you know, one of the pastors or one of the ministry leaders was working with her son. But, you know, I was supposed to jump in, put a cape on, put an S on my shirt, and jump in and save him every week. And I realized something. You can't do that. We have to introduce people to Jesus, and they need to walk on their own. All Nehemiah could do is set things right. They had to follow through, and they didn't. And at least this guy didn't. He was a piece of work. 
Let's talk about it a little bit. The people of Israel, as we said, had separated themselves from all the surrounding peoples after the reading of the book of Moses. They read the word. They said, we, we can't be doing this. So they, they separated themselves. <coughs> Ezra the priest and scribe read the book of the law of Moses to the people of Israel. We saw that in chapter 8. In chapter 9, the Levites read the book of the law of the Lord their God to the people of Israel. And then in chapter 10, in chapter 10, the people of Israel made a binding agreement to follow the law of God given through Moses. We studied that together last week. The people had learned that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God. These were pagan people. These were foreigners. These were not servants of God. They had refused, their people, their ancestors, had refused to support the Israelites as they entered the promised land. And the Jews never forgot that. And they had conspired with Balaam to curse the Israelites, which God prevented, but then ultimately the people fell into sin because of their actions. So they are enemies. That's the point I'm trying to make. That's what Nehemiah is making clear. They were enemies, and these people were separate from their enemies while Nehemiah was there. He goes back to, to Shushan, And guess who they start hanging out with again? Their enemies. How many enemies do we spend time with in our lives? You know, some of those enemies can be television shows and websites. They don't have to actually be people. They can be books. They can be movies. They can be things that bring you down. They can be substances. These things will kill you. But isn't it amazing? Ooh, no one's around. What's the first thing in our sinful nature we think of? Let me go back to my enemies. Let me go back to Egypt. And that's what happened here. But they had responded by excluding those of foreign descent until, well, as they say, when the cat's away, the mice will play. And that's what happened. Eliashib the high priest had been closely associated with Tobiah the Ammonite. Now, he had been put in charge of the storerooms for the contributions of the people. That's like letting the fox in the hen house, right? I'm using a lot of cliches here tonight, most of them about farm animals. I don't know why. But I will tell you this. This is not a good thing. Imagine if someone had a history of stealing, and you put them in charge of the purse. Well, maybe they did that with Judas. That might not be a good example. But that's what happened with the disciples. And the the apostles, the other apostles tell us he was a thief. And they gave him the bag. And Well, yeah, he was good with money. Good with using it for his own purposes. When you, when you put the wrong person in the wrong place, bad things happen. Well, that's what happened here. He had provided Tobiah, this man Eliashib, had provided Tobiah with a large storeroom within the temple. I don't know what he was doing there, but it wasn't good. I don't need to know what you're doing if you're not serving God. It's not good. I don't need to know where you are or who you're with, but I can tell you what. If you're not serving God, it's not good. Tobiah was an enemy of God and of his people. We saw that throughout this entire book. The the nobles of Judah, by the way, we learned this in chapter 6, they were in communication with Tobiah. Talk about the need to drain the swamp, right? You got this guy who's infiltrated the leadership of Judah. He's an enemy of God and God's people, and he's in constant communication with the leadership while the Jews are rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. You can see that in chapter 6, verse 17. They were loyal. These Jews were loyal to Tobiah. Why? Well, because he and his son had married into prominent Jewish families. They were in business together. So I'm guessing that that storeroom was used for some business purpose. 
but I don't know. Whatever it was, it wasn't good. It wasn't being used for what God had intended it to be used for. So that much we do know. Now, they were loyal to Tobiah because he and his son had married into the family. They're really no friends of Nehemiah or of their own people. They're betraying their own people. They had even tried to convince Nehemiah that Tobiah was a good guy. He's a good man, back in chapter 6, verse 19. And then they betrayed his confidence by ratting out everything Nehemiah was going to do to his enemies. They were like spies. They had infiltrated the leadership. And Nehemiah talked about that earlier. Now, Tobiah had sent letters to try to intimidate Nehemiah as well. So this is no good guy. If you want to do a little search, search the name Tobiah from Nehemiah 1 all the way through the rest of the book, and you will see this guy never did anything good for God's people. He was an enemy. And yet this priest is connected to him. Now, Nehemiah, as we saw, had been away from Jerusalem for several years. He had returned to Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, in 432 B.C. and stayed in Persia until 430 B.C., so about, about uh, two years, until he received Artaxerxes' permission to return. And I suspect the reason he returned is because someone said, you better get back here. Things are out of control again. And then he learned about Eliashib's wickedness when he returned to the city. And I love it. I love it. He threw all of Tobiah's goods, everything he had. He probably set up a little store, probably. I'm guessing it was some kind of a you know, store, something he was selling there. Nehemiah threw all of his goods out of the temple storeroom and purified and restored the storeroom. I like Nehemiah. No joke. He got in there and just purged the guy, like when you call Terminix to get rid of those, you know, bugs. He just... He just got rid of him. He, he was an exterminator. He got rid of the bugs. Now, this led to the next logical problem, and that was that the people had failed to provide for the Levites in Jerusalem. We read a little. He said in verse 10, I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them. Of course not. They were supposed to be stored in the room that Tobiah is operating his business out of, or whatever he was doing there. And that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. You know what that means? They quit. They were no longer doing what the Levites are supposed to do, and the singers weren't singing anymore. All of the reforms that Nehemiah had set up, it all went to pot because one guy decided to let the enemy in. You know, a whole church can come down. I'm not talking about the building. But the church family can come down to the foundation and be raised simply because you let the enemy in. Listen, we need to be very, very careful about who we associate with. That's the lesson here. Well, we read there, it says, I like this, Nehemiah in verse 11. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil into the storerooms. I put Shemaliah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and the Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan, son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because these men were considered trustworthy and they were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers. <coughs> so the storeroom that was supposed to be providing for the full-time priests the ministers in Jerusalem, was taken over by an enemy and all of the people that were serving God there quit and went back to their lives, all because one guy let the enemy in. Well, Nehemiah fixed that. He straightened everybody out. 
One of the things he says right here in verse 14. Remember me for this, O my God. This is Nehemiah praying. And do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. Big problem. The people had failed to provide for the temple, the priests and the Levites. But Nehemiah restored those contributions of the people to the storms, and then he put the right people in charge and prayed that God would be pleased with him for all that he had done for his temple. He's one of my heroes because this is a guy that fixes things. It's a guy that solves problems. But he looks to God to solve them. And he prays to God. And he wants God to remember all that he's done, not because he's looking for a reward. He just, he just wants it to be effective. He, he wants to help people even when people don't seem to want to help themselves. Well, that was really two problems, I guess. You had the problem of the uh, Tobiah in the storeroom and then the consequential problem of the people not being able to pay the Levites and the singers because this other guy was where they, he wasn't supposed to be. Then you have a third problem. And this problem has to do with honoring God. That was more about association uh, with, with outsiders and people they shouldn't be associated with. Now we get to people's refusal to, to observe the Sabbath in Jerusalem. Remember, the whole system of Judaism is all about the Sabbath day. I mean, the whole thing is built on this idea of God created the world, heavens and the earth, and six days and rested on the seventh. And that's a Saturday. But what did they, that's one of the big commandments, right? One of the top ten. What happened? Well, let's read. Verse 15. In those days, I, now the, this is interesting. What happened there was probably told to Nehemiah. But this is, he witnesses this. I saw, in those days, I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, and figs, and all kinds of loads. Now, you're starting to see the real problem here. These people were more business-minded than spiritually-minded. They were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. Men from Tyre, those are people who are not Jews, who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. All this happened in like two years. Think about it. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your forefathers do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city? Speaking of the captivity and the exile and the destruction, right? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. I like this guy. I don't know if he knew martial arts, but he wasn't afraid to do what needed to be done. We're going to see in the next section, yeah, he definitely wasn't afraid to do what needed to be done. He's going to have to lay hands on He's going to take them down if they're doing things that are contrary to God's word. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Oh, lo and behold. What he probably meant when he said, I'm going to lay hands on you, probably going to throw him in jail. We read then, I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. 
Remember me for this also, O my God, Nehemiah writes, and show mercy to me according to your great love. I almost feel sorry for this guy because he had made so many sacrifices and given so much only for people to pretty much ignore everything he did. Who does that sound like? Take a look in the mirror when you get home. Think of all that Jesus has done for us, is doing for us, will do for us in eternity. And every time we go the other way and disobey his word, we're no better than these guys outside the gates. And it was all about money. They wanted to sell. They wanted to buy. They wanted to make money. They're not supposed to do this on the Sabbath, but money became more important. Commerce became more important. Again, I really believe that Tobiah was involved in some kind of a business venture. All of this seems to come down to what is profitable. But what do we know from the Scripture? What is truly profitable? What is truly profitable to serve God and keep his commandments? That is the whole duty of man. So what did Nehemiah do? Well, after they were conducting business and after he warned them not to sell food, the foreigners that were living in Jerusalem had been hanging out there not because they liked Jerusalem, because they liked money. They were in business. They were selling food and merchandise to the people. And all they needed to do was not buy on the Sabbath and they wouldn't have been there. So you can't blame them. It's God's people that are the problem. What did Nehemiah do? He rebuked the nobles for allowing the people to desecrate the Sabbath. They were probably getting paid off. So when you look at our government and you see how things are and you throw up your hands and you say, oh, everyone's corrupt, we're lost, we're lost, this is nothing new. God is still God, though, amen? And that's who we need to look to. Nehemiah had the Levites purify themselves and guard the gates. He straightened everybody out. And Nehemiah prayed that God would be pleased with him for honoring the Sabbath and show him mercy. One last problem, and this one is probably the worst. So he solved the problem of Tobiah, and he solved the problem of the Levites not getting paid, and now he solved the problem of the people not obeying the Sabbath and doing business on the Sabbath day. This one, though, must have truly broke his heart. You could could see by the way he responded that it really did. It's interesting because in the book of Ezra, Ezra had to deal with this as well. That was years earlier. Ezra had to deal with the same situation. It was like people had this natural gravity or attraction to the wrong thing. We call it the sin nature. And how many people that I have known throughout the decades of serving the Lord have failed because of this sin? It's being unequally yoked with those they shouldn't be connected to. And I'm not talking about just doing business at this point. This is marriage to people that are not God's people. Let's see what happened. Verse 23, moreover, in those days, I, Nehemiah says, saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Now, Ashdod was the Philistine land. Ammon and Moab, we've already talked about them. They weren't even supposed to be anywhere near the people of God. So they basically found the worst type of women and married them. And when I say worst type of women, I mean people that truly did not know God or serve God or love God. Now, I'm going to tell you something, because Michelle and I did young adults ministry for many years, and as a pastor for a number of decades now, I can tell you, you would think that this wouldn't happen, that someone who truly loves God would not allow themselves to get into a relationship with someone that doesn't know God. 
But you know what happens? This happens over and over and over again. And we make little excuses for ourselves. Well, you know, they love God. Which God? Well, and, and I don't say this to be mean, but the best one is, well, you know, he grew up Catholic. He, he knows all about God. You can, you can grow up Catholic and not know God. You can grow up Catholic and know God. It's not about whether you're Catholic or not. It's about whether you know God. I hear all these excuses, and when I was younger, I used to be way more tactful. I'm just not anymore. I just say it now. What in the world are you doing? Where do you think this is going? What do you think is going to happen to you? Like, I talk like that. I, I hear my grandmother's voice, my father's voice come out of me when I talk like this. Because you reach a point, like a fever pitch, where you've seen it happen so many times that all the trappings of nice, niceness and, and, and massaging it and making it palatable, and it goes out the window and you just want to go, come here. And, and it really comes from a good place of your heart. You want to beat them, but it comes from a good place in your heart because you're so frustrated seeing people you care about do the worst possible thing imaginable. So we learned that half their children, so what does that mean? Half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. See, it's amazing. You marry somebody who's not a Christian and you and your children are going to become very much like unbelievers. Whether you're saved or not is not the point. How are you living? What happened here? I like this. 25, verse 25. I rebuked them and called curses down on them, which is a very Jewish thing to do. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. Now, I promise you, in all my years of ministry, I've never beat anyone or pulled out their hair. But in the last two years, I've actually learned how to do those things. But I would never do them. So I guess I understand how Nehemiah got to this point. I really do. I used to read this and I'm like, man, he really he lost it. No. He reached a point where he realized these people were their own worst enemies. And that they were doing the absolute worst possible things for their faith and for their life. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters, <coughs> excuse me, in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned among the many nations? There was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel, but even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now? that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women. One of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest. Who? The same guy that caused problem number one. Check it out. One of these sons was son-in-law to Sanballat, the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. I don't know what that means exactly, but it can't be good. <laughs> he drove him away. Now, he goes on to say, Remember them, not remember me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they defied the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. And, and you know, it's, it's sad when you see people that are in ministry and in leadership make compromises of any kind. But getting involved in sinful sexual relationships 
is so devastating, not only to themselves and their family, but to the church, to the ministry. And you see it over and over and over again. It makes me wonder if, like, maybe if somebody pulled their hair out, maybe they wouldn't have done it. Oh, you don't have to physically pull their hair out, but maybe, maybe you need to shake them up a little bit. Like, you're going to do that, you're fired. How about that? You know what we do today? Oh, well, you know, he's going to counseling. Maybe you're fired. How about that? It's, we're just, we need to understand how important it is to serve God and as leaders, essential. And they weren't doing that. The people of Israel had married foreign women. They're raising their children as foreigners. For us, the application is unbelievers, right? Nehemiah rebuked them, cursed them, even abused some of them, made them take an oath not to intermarry with the surrounding peoples, and warned them of the consequences of intermarrying with the surrounding peoples. He he was really good about this. But as we said, one of the descendants of Eliashib, the high priest, had married the daughter of Sanballat the Hornet. Now, we talked about Tobiah. If you also want to do a little word search from Nehemiah chapter 1 on Sanballat, you'll see that he was even more of an enemy than Tobiah. Sanballat was an enemy of God and of his people Israel. He had mocked and ridiculed the people of Israel, accused them of rebellion in chapter 2. He had ridiculed the people of Israel and doubted their ability to rebuild the wall in chapter 4. He had threatened the people of Israel in chapter 4. He had sent repeated messages inviting Nehemiah to meet them on the plain of Ono so that they could assassinate Nehemiah. That was in chapter 6. He even sent an unsealed letter accusing Nehemiah of rebellion against the king of Persia, spreading rumors, false rumors, fake news. Sambalat had hired Shemaiah to intimidate Nehemiah into hiding in the temple so that he could, you know, get that opportunity to say, look, and he's supposed to be so strong and he's hiding from his enemies. Traps. This man was more wicked than Tobiah. That's why Nehemiah drove this man, who had married the daughter of Sanballat the Harnite, away from Jerusalem. You're out. You're fired. Nehemiah prayed to God, and he asked him to judge these men who had defied God and defiled their positions as priests and Levites. No smack on the wrist. No. Nehemiah purified the priests and the Levites as well. Look at verse 30. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign, Can I just say, going into this new year, that might be a good resolution if you're going to make one. Purify your life of everything foreign. I'm not talking about Chinese-made goods. I'm talking about the things that don't belong in your life. The foreign things that don't belong in the life of a child of God. It'd be a good idea to, as it says here, purify yourself of everything foreign. I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task, and I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. He set everything back up again that they had torn apart with their corruption. And he ends this book by saying, Remember me with favor or grace, O my God. He didn't chase everyone away. Even the people he got a little rough with He then made them take an oath. There were some people that needed to be driven away, like this character that we talked about, who married into the Sambalat's family. But you know, it's not about pushing people out of the church because they've sinned or they've failed, although there may be some people that really don't belong here. 
That should be a very small number. Most of the people that are not serving God should be encouraged to serve God. That's what we call repentance. We invite people into the church. We confront them with the truth of God's word. And then we don't say, well, do we have any sinners here? And people raise their hands and get out of here. No, we welcome them in and ask them to pray, confess their sins, and be forgiven. And, and that was the approach that Nehemiah took. Don't, don't be distracted by those moments when he was a little rough. Because his heart was for the people. It really was. And he prayed that God would be pleased with him for all that he had done. And what had he done? Well, he rebuilt the wall, restored the population of the city, reformed the people, rebuilt the nation, and had to do it all over again. Sometimes that's how it goes. We've seen that in our own nation. Things get set right, and then it has to be done again. And here we are again, two years later, seeing that some of the things that were right two years ago now have to be made right again. And I suspect that's just the way life is, because there are all kinds of wicked people in our world, and if we allow ourselves as God's people to entertain the wickedness of the world, then we become just like that wickedness. The lesson of Nehemiah is be a good example. Lead people forward in the right direction in a way that they can follow and serve God. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us your truth, your word, but that in grace you're not chasing us away, you're welcoming us in. You're challenging us to live for you, to put away all those things that are foreign, and to purify our hearts. As we start a new year, not that that day is any different than any other, but as we start a new year, a new month, a new season in our lives, may the things that are foreign be purged from our lives, that we might serve you with all of our hearts, minds, soul, and strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.